Hi there, welcome to the Raising Cinephiles podcast, a show about passing on your love of cinema to the next generation. I'm your host, Jessica Cantor, and I have worked in all facets of the entertainment industry for the last 20 years, and recently became a mom. In today's episode, we speak with Cooper Samuelson about how to make sure our kids like the same films we do so we're not stuck watching things that drive us insane. Always remember that myself and guests are speaking from personal experience, not giving parenting advice. Let's go ahead and dive into the episode. Welcome back to the Raising Cinephiles podcast. This is your host, Jessica Cantor, and I'm here with Cooper Samuelson, who is the head of film at Blumhouse. And we just established, we very briefly were in contact early in our careers. And I'm so excited to have you on the show. Lovely to be here. Awesome. My first question, what is your first movie memory? So I don't know how old I was, but I was probably four or five. And Disney used to run these, I think they were essentially clip shows that they would run on Sunday nights. And this one was called Disney's Halloween Treat. And it was basically, it took like different pieces of move, of Disney movies and I guess the scariest or the most Halloween centered ones. And so they had the escape from Bald Mountain from Fantasia was one of them. And there was a sequence from The Legend of Sleepy Hollow where the Headless Horseman throws the flaming pumpkin down the bridge and they mashed them all up into a kind of presentation. We had it on VHS because my father had taped it off of television. So I still remember maybe like a commercial for Jiffy that would interrupt one of them. And I used to watch that to the point where then when I saw Fantasia, I had this very weird experience where all of a sudden this one sequence I had seen a thousand times, this Escape from Bald Mountain sequence. And that, I think that's the, that's my earliest memory of movies specifically the VHS player that would deliver this experience to me. So horror from the start. Yes, little did I know. And what was your family rituals around movies, television? Yeah, I grew up in Massachusetts in the 80s and 90s. And essentially, we, there's no cable. And so three and then eventually four networks. And so it was entirely driven by taking, just recording stuff off of the VHS player. And my dad, who was not very tech savvy at all, had nonetheless somehow figured out both how to put in the code when you got the TV guide. You could see there was like a little code for how to automatically record that program. And he also had managed to hook up two VCRs. So there was one in, I think, upstairs in our house and one downstairs. So he was able to figure out how to connect them so that we could record VHS. So we, when we rented something, we could record it. And so our ritual was definitely the sort of repeat viewing those things that we had recorded off of television or had there's a store called video smith that was the sort of the video store in our town and so that it was really very intentional there was very little like television watching and it was like let's sit down and watch and rewatch the same things over and over again that was virtual what type of stuff would he record oh my god it was because it, we just we, there was no ability to go search for stuff and select it it was whatever the movie of the week was. I remember I had like a, a copy of Police Academy that was like the ABC movie of the week. Trading Places was like a big, it was in a really thorough rotation because it was just on television. And so a lot of it was that. And then the idea of going to the video store and being able to select a movie was pretty exotic at that point. Like it was, it was very uncommon. 
And so every now and then we, as a special treat, we get to go and actually choose a movie, but mostly it was so much easier just to take whatever VHSs we had already recorded and just go back to those. And again, my media diet was so sparse because I didn't really watch any television that like it, even if I was going to watch something for the 11th time, it was still felt like a special treat. Anyway, that's kind of how. Did you go to the movie theaters? Yeah, we went to the movie theaters. There was a, I grew up in this little town called Belmont and there was a movie theater in Cambridge that we would go to called the Fresh Pond Mall. And uh, we definitely went to movies. I don't honestly have my, I don't have that many vivid memories of going to movies until I was like eight or nine, I think. I saw RoboCop because my dad thought, didn't really understand what it was. It's because honestly, the sort of iconography of RoboCop seems like a kid's movie iconography. Like the suit was so cool looking. And then obviously we realized pretty early in that movie that it was totally inappropriate for a nine-year-old. I think Murphy gets shot in the head. I just really think, holy shit, this is not for me. But uh, yeah, that, that was, it was not until I had a little bit more agency and could actively agitate to go out to a movie that, that we ended up going out to a lot of movies. And how did you discover your taste? It was really VHS driven. And it was, I think I was just raised I don't think that I had, I don't think that my taste was intrinsic to me. I think it was entirely nurture. And my parents just really exposed me to mostly good movies. And so they were really into Hitchcock. So we just did a lot of notorious North Great Northwest. I grew up playing tennis. So we Strangers on a Train was like a big movie because there's that amazing tennis sequence. And so I think I was just, I was only really exposed to that. And every now and then, like I would get my mitts on a movie that was garbage, right? Like that, like there was a movie called The Quest. I'll never forget. I think it was when they were doing knockoffs of E.T. basically. And it was like a sort of like a JV version of E.T. And I remember being like, I think this is bad. I don't know exactly how I know that it's bad, but it's just not, it's just not good. Flight of the Navigator was a little bit like that too, where you're like, it's it's fine, but it was like not E.T. or mm-hmm. certainly not Hitchcock. So I think that because I had such an intense exposure to like really high quality movies, I could I could develop a little bit of a sense of garbage just in contrast to that. And when did you know that filmmaking was a craft? Honestly, I don't think, I think it was really late i think it was like maybe at the end of high school figured out that these things did not just emerge fully formed from athena like athena from the head of zeus it was like a really it was like a thing that had to be created but it wasn't it honestly i don't think it was until really the end of high school that i became at all aware of, of that and i entertainment weekly was a big magazine in the house and so i would get a little bit of a feeling of behind the scenes as if there was anything behind a scene and but yeah it was pretty late and i was not one of these oh i'm gonna go with my camcorder and make movies in my backyard with my cat or whatever it was it was i did not i was very grateful that the movies were so they emerged professionally and with production value and i didn't have to think about how they were created Yeah, I also, similarly, I was a ballet dancer, so I was focused on that. And I loved movies, and I enjoyed experiencing feelings and stories. And I didn't care how they were made, really, until college for me. And and I was lucky I was exposed to 
international cinema, but I went to NYU and I had friends who were film students and I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> so do you went to, but you did not go to Tisch. You were just a, a gen pop. I was in Gallatin, which is the School of Individualized Study. Sure. And so I did take a, a number of film classes once I realized that I had an interest in it. Many classes at Tisch, but no, I was not. Did you end up developing your thesis as a interdisciplinary thing with film or did you just leave film as a fun little side set of classes? I combine film and, and computer science makes a lot of sense being that I make a lot of new media work <laughs> now, yeah. some traditional stuff and a lot of sci-fi. My interest is a lot in the sci-fi space because of having a pretty good understanding of where technology is going. Especially right now. Have you been using ChatGPT? Um, yes. How many? That was all ChatGPT? Not my intro to you today, but I have a trailer that's all ChatGPT. I was like, how do I introduce the podcast about this? And it came out nice. And I edited it a little bit. And I'm definitely interested in that space. And that's a whole nother conversation, but let's keep us on track. So when did you know you wanted to work in film? The summer before my senior year of college, I had edited the art section of the school paper. And so... I, as a result of that, I got, there was a little mailbox that we had where all the mail would be delivered and including the screening invitations. So that this is back when, I mean, I think they sometimes do this, but they would do press screenings for college newspapers. And I would, I would open up the little mailbox and every time I opened it up, it was like Christmas. There would be a little envelope and you, and if it was like a studio, it would be like a slightly harder stock. And I would get an invitation to see a, about a boy a month before it came out or frailty, the Bill Paxton movie or whatever high fidelity. I remember I saw, I think my junior year and, and I would just go and get free movies under the pretext of reviewing the movies. And sometimes I would actually legitimately review them, but, but that, that I think the sort of exposure to that definitely before a movie has come out, it weirdly, it be, before it was weird to see a movie before anyone had reacted culturally to it. It was a very pure film going experience where you're just experiencing the thing itself, as opposed to, Oh my God, the Lord of the Rings is a big deal now and whatever. And so that definitely those two years of getting those movie invitations got, made me think I should do a Hollywood internship. So I interned at Warner brothers the summer before my senior year, actually I interned at a, on a, showtime television show and also warner brothers and and that was where i was like okay i'm gonna when i graduate this i'll try this let's so that that was where i previously i think i maybe thought i'm gonna be a journalist or i'm gonna go work at a magazine or whatever but it was that summer that i was like okay let me let me try this stuck i stuck stuck amazingly none of the people i met was an intern are in the business anymore everyone is just gone it's a Attrition has been intense. Yeah. In a mom text group, a bunch of women who had babies this last year, and it was like five of us were in a tracking board together when we were assistants, just reconnected over having kids, all still kind of industry or industry adjacent, which is weird how that brings us back together. I have not heard the term tracking board in In lots of years. Yeah. Now they use technology outside of Google groups. Yeah. So is having your children like cinema important to you? It's important to me just from a purely selfish standpoint, because I want it to be good for me too. And so, yeah, so it's been a definitely like 
from the get-go, we were extraordinarily like doctrinaire about screen time and really like they there was no iPads and there was no no nothing. Essentially, we really even now don't their media diet is they get one movie a weekend and then they get two episodes of television a weekend. And that's it as far as whatever they call it, filmed linear content. And and so yeah, early on I really tried to narrow the kinds of things that they watch. So they never saw Paw Patrol and they never saw stuff that I viewed snobbly as garbage. And what we tried to do was like the UCLA Hammer Museum once a month in the Billy Wilder Theater will play Lassie Come Home or the original Richard Donner Superman or whatever. It's like a family screening. And so we do that a lot so they could get used to the idea of it's really special and you have to drive to go get it. And even like the, and then when my youngest turned three, I believe, then we loosened up the screen rules for airplanes where we said you can have an iPad on an airplane, but they thought that the iPads only worked when the seatbelt light turned off. They thought that's what made the iPads work. And it's honestly just been a kind of continuous attempting to create a break wall between their peers and the sort of garbage tastes of little boys in the world and my aspirations for them to get really into like good things. And so sometimes it's like a, the compromise ends up being like Mission Impossible Fallout, which is, in my view, a kind of cinematic masterpiece, but it still has enough just sort of general stimulation that they go with it. So yeah, that's important to me. When did you first take your kids to the Hammer Museum, which I'm so happy to know about because I'm not too far from there and, and oh my, my kids old enough. Was, there was a Shirley Temple movie called Animal Crackers. I think they were, maybe they were four and two or something like that. They were really young. Yeah, I was, yeah, four, four and two. Those screenings are really good. And sometimes they have that kind of stuff at this American Cinematheque. I live right by the Egyptian which has obviously been undergoing renovations for three years. But the Egyptian had a screening. I think it was a theory that they were lost Laurel and Hardy shorts. And there was a very famous one that was centered around a pie fight. It was like the first time I think that, I think that was a real innovation in like physical comedy that someone threw a pie in the face of somebody else. That was a big moment. And there was an incredible short that I think was lost for a while. And in fact, one of the reels remains lost. But the Egyptian had put together, it's salvaged it and put it together. And it's actually shot at Paramount, you can tell. And it's one of the most incredible shorts. And my two chucklehead boy children just could not believe that adults were throwing pies at each other and hitting each other in the face. And and they lost that. They laughed so hard that they, they honestly lost their minds in the Egyptian, in the aisles of the Egyptian theater. And so Laurel and Hardy became a thing for a bit with us where they would be really into going on Amazon Prime has a lot of really badly transferred Laurel and Hardy shorts, but those ended up being really important to them. And anyway, so so there's plenty, and especially in LA, there's plenty of these screenings of kids' movies and and that they really like. Did they mimic any of that behavior with each other? It's hard to tell whether that behavior was conditioned upon them by Laurel and Hardy or whether that was just part of who they were, but they're two little boys, especially looking COVID. A lot of the way they would get their energy out was by beating the crap out of each other. But it was mostly, I think they mostly understood the sort of 
unreality of it, like the theatricality of it. Like it's not necessarily behavior that's like portable to like real life with the exception maybe of like water balloon fights. That was the closest we came to, oh, it's, it, we're going to be permissive and like, it's going to be okay for you to throw something at your brother in a way that's intended to hit him as hard as possible. But yeah, Laurel and Hardy was like that. They were really into it, Laurel and Hardy. And we're like Marx Brothers because Marx Brothers are so dialogue driven. They had a little more trouble like following. That was like more like puns and misunderstandings than it was about like the collision of people in the in, in physical space. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And we're outside of that. Is there anything you've shown them that you were surprised by their reaction? I think generally, let me put it this way. I think that if my, in my own experience, if your kids really see you really into something, they just osmotically become into it. So there haven't been like things that mostly they just follow along with what I'm interested in. There have been, I'm trying to think. We went through a period in COVID where we, because we were desperate, we made a rule that if they read a book that a movie was based on, that just unlocked that movie. And it didn't count towards their quota. Like it was like a bonus movie. And so (laughs) that just opened up like a whole lane of like kind of desperation reading or whatever you call it. So they read, they read the Ian Fleming Chitty Chitty Bang because they discovered that the movie was two and a half hours long. And so they figure (laughs) like from a return on investment, like that movie made sense. And actually the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang book is pretty good. So they really got into this movie, this Danny Boyle movie from 15 years ago called Millions, which again, I was like, this movie's okay. They were really into it because it's about kids finding a shitload of money, which for a kid is that's and that would be amazing if suddenly I could do whatever I wanted because I had millions of dollars. So that was a, that actually they turned on the, that movie because the writer, Frank Cottrell Boyce, wrote the Chitty Chitty Bang sequels. The sort of the official, they had like Ian Fleming wrote the book, but then they did a, unofficial sequels that Frank Cottrell Boyce wrote. So anyway, they were into those books. So they're like, wow, this guy wrote another kid's book that also has a movie based on it. So they, anyway, Millions was one of those weird, my kids are into this random movie that I thought was only okay when it came out. And did you find them reading a book about a movie changed their movie experience? I think the effect of it was that they were more likely to savor it because they had paid for it in a weird way. So that, so like we did the Princess Bride out loud. And by the, if they got through a book, that was being read to them by us, that still counted as a bonus movie. So Mm -hmm. The Princess Bride, they really were into the book with the exception of the frame story. And the frame story of The Princess Bride novel is totally different. It's not not Fred Savage being read to us. It's a whole, it's like an academic thing where like some academic found this old manuscript. It's not, honestly, the frame story is terrible in the book. And so we would just skip the frame story. So I only read Fezzik and Inigo and Wesley and stuff. But they were definitely like, I felt like they definitely appreciated that movie more because they understood the storytelling mechanics that were underneath it. Like they were more conscious in a way that I probably never was when I was a kid of the creation of the movie because they had been shown the blueprints 
so they could understand, oh, like that blueprint became something. And Fezzik in the book is not, is like Turkish. And so they'd be like, why did they change him? And I was like, so there was this wrestler in the 80s named Andre the Giant. He was French. And so he was so unique that they were like, you should hire this actor, but he can't play Turkish because he's clearly French. So they have to change the character to French. And they're like, oh, Oh, so you like that was like the idea of adaptation for them was like, oh, they had to make a Fezzik French because of Andre the Giant. But they started to realize there were lots of things that you have to change when you turn something from a blueprint into a an object. I that, find this all really fascinating. It also sounds like it created really great conversation between you and your boys around just the stories themselves. Oh, it's totally that kind of meta consumption of the movie is that's the whole, that's the whole pleasure, right? Yeah. I don't weirdly feel like I'm not into the minions or whatever. I really, I just don't understand them, but I can see the look on their faces when they watch it. And honestly, I can't even do those movies at home. I just can't, I can't even be in the room. So in a weird way, going into a cinema and watching Sonic the Hedgehog as as painful as it is. and And I think it's quite painful for me. It at least provides the kind of, secondary pleasure of like they are into it and i can be like wow god i can't wait for ace ventura to be appropriate for them or dumb and dumber to be appropriate for them so they can see oh like jim carrey can throw fastballs inside of like an object that's kind of worthy of those fastballs as opposed to this weird sonic the hedgehog movie where they shot like seattle like seattle for hawaii or i'm like where does this movie take place anyway whatever it's a separate thing yeah but yeah, no, the conversation is what it's is what makes it pleasurable. The other question I've been asking, and it's because everyone I'm interviewing so far for this works in the business, that they find that their children understand the making of movies and there's a little like less suspending of disbelief, which in some ways allows them to watch more mature content in the ten or so conversations I've had so far, that something is less scary because you know it's fabricated rather than just being in the moment thinking that's happening to you. Do you see that for your kids? I don't know. I don't really have a baseline to measure that against. In general, my kids were mostly pretty taken with the scenarios on screen. And I don't think, I'm trying to think. I definitely remember like the rodents of unusual size in Princess Bride. For my younger son, who was five at the time, it was just the music that like, God, he was like, I'm out of this room for tell me when that scene is over. And those are not realistic, really well rendered makeup effects, right? Those are like goofball, like dudes in rat suits. So I think that they have mostly believed the scenarios, especially in live action movies, and, and had them felt as if they're mostly real and not necessarily thought about the artifice of it not been tweaked by the artifice of it and how much do they understand that you make films now they understand it but there's now they're 9 11 they're pretty clear they're also like they're at school with jason bateman's daughter and so they see maple's daddy's on a sign on ventura boulevard like they they are aware of their humans who they interface with in real life who do this other thing which is they appear inside of movies and tv so they're pretty aware and i hope that has not caused them to be cynical or to think too much about the construction or the artifice or anything like that but they they can still experience them like they don't think about the fact that 
Hawkeye, the guy who played Hawkeye is also in Ghost Protocol. Like they, they, they still are a little surprised when I point out, oh, do you, you, you know him, right? He was Hawkeye. Oh, they like, even though it's definitely Jeremy Renner, it looks a lot like Jeremy Renner. It's not some, <laughs> some trick. Yeah, that's great that you've been able to keep the innocence of watching content. And it also makes sense that if they're still so taken by the screen that you wouldn't want to push content they aren't ready for. Look, I definitely have put, I, I showed them The Fugitive four months ago. And it, I, it, was, it was mostly because we were on like a Harris Ford. We'd done Clear and Present Danger and whatever. And The Fugitive was like, that did not work for them. Because Cela Ward's death was just, they just did not, that was just too much. They just were, they were mm-hmm. so affected by that. And I didn't even, and I didn't think about it because it was like so elliptical and it was like black and white and it was like off camera. But weirdly having Harrison Ford be so affected by his wife's death made it too real for that. Harrison Ford plays his wife's death as a harrowing horrible situation that it was just it just that my kids were just like this is too much so it's weird to try to figure out what like what is too intense and what's okay do they like being scared i don't think they take any special no not really it, like, they don't like, they don't megan they don't like they have not seen any of the movies that i've done with the exception of kids movies you know like gem and the holograms and benji yeah. and whatever they don't they have not watched megan and some of their some of my older son's classmates have seen it. he's in fifth grade and some of those kids have seen Megan and he's just, he just feels like it's too much for him. Yeah. The, my, the, the reason why I ask is I see, I got where the wild things are for my son and it's actually kind of scary. The monsters, he's 16 months. The, so like the, sorry, the, book, in the book or the Spike Jones movie. Yeah. He's not quite sitting through movies yet. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, um, I was going to say that's that movie. I have not shown my kids the Spike Jones movie yet. Yeah. No, the book and but he'll keep picking it out for me to read to him. And then when the scary part happens, yeah. he walks away and then comes back. And so I feel like he likes yeah. the idea of it, but he can't quite handle it. I think he was probably six at the time. But my younger one, we had this book, Miss Nelson is Missing. You remember that book? I don't know. Miss Nelson is Missing is like a book about a teacher who is really sweet and she goes away. And she's replaced by Miss Viola Swamp, who's really the original teacher, but just wearing makeup and a wig and my younger son was so freaked out by this book that he was like he didn't want it in the house and there was a little bit of vamping i think that he was doing like a little bit of going to develop this fear but i but mostly i think my children will weaponize their own their respective like scaredy catness against each other like when Mm -hmm. we i took my older son to see coco when it was in theaters and uh he was definitely a little freaked out by coco like coco was a little scary for him and and my younger one found out that my older one was freaked out by coco so my younger one was would just sing this remember me song just to troll just to basically scare troll my older son is like remember me and and it was just like a way of them like essentially wounding each other in a way that wasn't going to draw any blood. Yeah, that, that sounds like a younger sibling. We're running out of time. And so my last question is, if you were to pick one film that I introduced my son to, so he becomes a cinephile, what would you recommend and why? To me, I think one of the greatest films ever made is Ratatouille. And Ratatouille, to me, the values of Ratatouille are really powerful. Like the idea that anyone can cook is, I think, 
a really, it's like a very kind of growth mindset, like value system that obviously for kids, you want to praise effort and not achievement and you whatever, all these like things. But that movie I think has all of the pleasures of Laurel and Hardy, like slapstick. It has some real intensity. He gets separated from his family, just like in the Disney movies. And, but it's really about trying to find something that you love and doing it. And, and it also weirdly allows for characters to behave horribly to each other. And it's, it's, it's like, it's, it destigmatizes that in a weird way. And it's okay for like people to like do bad things as long as they understand what they did and they like correct it. And I also think that like Remy is definitely like a kid figure in that in that he's like an adult, but he's like a kid figure. And so I think that every kid's fantasy is to stand on their the head of their parent and yank their hair so that it causes their limbs to move in a certain way. That is a fantasy. And I remember when I used to, when my kids were really young and wake them up in the morning, my wife works really early every day. So I would do the wake up stuff. And I would do this thing when I went into their room where I would say, which curtain should I open first? And it would point at one curtain and I would like my, like my body was being thrust in that direction because they pointed in that direction and they got so much, they got so centered from that idea of being able to exert some of their will on the world that they, it was like their favorite thing in the day is like they get to, and it's wholly inconsequential. It does not matter which curtain you open first, but the idea that they had some power just mattered to them. And I think that, Figuring out how to expose them, how to expose them to movies so that they choose to eat their vegetables and they realize what kind of succor they're getting from these things is really important. And honestly, the Pixar, the Pixar movies, is that's the closest you get now to It Happened One Night. It's the closest you get to bringing up baby. And so, I don't know, that, th- those seem like the most, I don't know, portable to getting them into classic movies later. Thank you. Final answer. Ratatouille. I love that. I hadn't heard about it. And we cook together in the kitchen. So I think that's a good one too. Um, Cooper, thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation. Of course. course. Thanks for having me. And and I hope it goes well. I hope that you do not have to uh, sit through too much garbage, rise of guru, and, uh, and train the kid well. If you enjoyed the conversation, please don't forget to like and subscribe. New episodes release every Wednesday. And leave a comment and let me know which movie you think I should show my son. Until next time, take care.